0: ASIN Attorney Partnership webinar series.
1: Hi everyone, I would like to welcome you and wish you a very healthy and happy new year. We start the year with our Buying Your Distributor webinar today. As we all observe closely, the turmoil in international trade has increased the importance of the location of the production of goods and services, while Turkey is offering high value in quality, pricing, and location. The transaction type, which we see on the rises buying your distributor. Today, even though we can only meet virtually due to Omicron incident, it's still very nice and enthusing for us all meeting you here. So thanks for coming. People who involve in the MA transactions would know that each transaction owns its own dynamics. And by closing, we have each time a different story to remember. Today, together with my partners, we will be providing you with some background on the most important aspects of the story, where the casting star is the buyer of its own distributor, and we will try to evaluate this process from five different perspectives, since we believe these transactions are to be considered multidimensional and their consequences extend beyond closing. Just to give you an overview for today, first I will be covering the transactional side from the eyes of an M&A partner. Then my colleague Sinan Diniz will make us to focus on the key points of the competition law. While my compliance partner, Yalın Akmenik, together with my colleague, Gökçe Seres, will lead us to complete the transaction on a compliance basis. My partner, Sarkach Kokenek, will cover employment law-related issues of these transactions. And finally, my partner, Arda Likindji, will be sharing the key text issues to consider in the process. I'm sure there will be plenty of questions, so please feel free to ask your questions over the Q&A. And if we need, we can also have a slot to discuss the questions at the end of the presentation. And one final quick reminder for all of us, considering that audience today is multinational, we prepared our presentation in English, but... If you believe this session would be beneficial also for your Turkish colleagues, we would be happy to operate an additional session in Turkish just to eliminate language barriers for them, if any. So let's get started with the M&A side of the story. First topic I would like to touch upon is the deal structure. We can go to the next slide, please. In all of the transactions involving acquisition of a distributor, the first question raised by our client is which transaction structure to follow and whether an asset transfer deal would be advantageous in their case. As you know, in these transactions, the buyer considers primarily to acquire the portfolio, I mean, the network of the distributor, but usually together with the portfolio network of the business, the business itself, we mean workplace, employees, inventories and other assets Come also together. In case of this question about the structure, the keyword to determine our route will be usually set by our tax team. I do not want to spoil the rest of the presentation since my partner Erda Lekinji will elaborate the tax consequences in detail in the coming parts of our webinar. But I believe it would not be wrong to say, in principle, that the asset transfer procedures under Turkish law are. Usually, less advantages for the parties considered together with the tax consequences, and therefore, share deals are widely preferred in the market for the purpose of buying the distributor target. In any case, however, please note it's also possible that the buyer may choose to pursue an asset transfer transaction due to the historic compliance issues in the target or if the buyer has already another entity in Turkey and would like to continue the operations through that entity only. So there may be different motifs for each client, but we will focus today mainly on the share deal structure. So we can go to the next chart and uh, let's have a look at the process chart in the next slide. Yes, the transaction starts usually with commercial discussions, as you may already know. And then a firm sheet can be executed. And right before the start of the due diligence, NDA may be executed as well. Then a due diligence is conducted to understand the risk areas in the business and define how to mitigate these risks before closing or how to handle them under the definitive agreements. Upon negotiation of the SPA, SHA, and other transaction documents, we will have a signing. And signing will be followed by an interim period where the regulatory approvals will be taken, our other CPs will be completed. And then hopefully we will have a closing where the share transfer will, complete, will be completed. And after the closing, a post closing integration period may also follow. Do you see any different phase or any action to be taken for completion, which is not similar but just like another MA process? Just simply the answer is no. And the process would consist of the same steps in other MA transactions. So, where is the difference? We can move to the next slide. And we would say the process in general will have convenience. So, we will start with the positive side of the transaction. When compared to other standard MA transactions. Why? Because the purchaser already knows their counterparty, the seller, before the start of the process. And because they have been in a business relation with each other for a while, both parties know their general approach to the problems and issues which may be encountered during the negotiations or post-closing. Having an ongoing business relation, provides an insight to both of the parties about where the relation before or after closing can be stuck, and if it is stuck, how the issues can be solved. We always tell our clients that the main purpose of the negotiations should be primarily to get to know your counterparty. And the negotiations are like an engagement process where the parties come closer to each other. But here in our case, The parties already know each other, which can accelerate the whole process in a positive way. Besides, not only the counterparty, but also the business the purchaser intends to acquire is well-known to the purchaser, together with key employees or maybe the daily business operations of the target. In light of this, the purchaser can foresee the possible risks prior to the conduct of a detailed CV and even have an idea how to handle these issues in the business under the definitive agreement or post-closing, which would provide also an easier transition period after closing. So these were the positive sides of the transaction. Now, after the conveniences of a buying a distributor, now we will focus on the due diligence part of the process. We can move to the next slide, please. So. Due diligence can consist of several work streams, and major one of these work streams would be reviewing the material contracts of the targets. Material agreements may vary in each company since they are defined as the agreements material to the business. In our case, these may include the distributorship agreements or agreements with, with customers and agreements with the service providers as well. There will be many issues to check under these contracts from legal, technical, commercial perspective, but one of the important points would be checking whether these agreements include any change of control clauses. While conducting due diligence, the material agreements need to be first determined, then carefully reviewed by the legal teams to understand if there are any clauses which may be triggered by the contemplated transaction. And if there are any, how these clauses need to be handled together with the legal consequences. At this point, it's crucial how the control change under the relevant agreements are defined. Sometimes even a minority share transfer can trigger the control change. But as a general rule, because the buyout of entire share capital is the Transactions be usually encountered for buying your distributors, we can say as a general rule, it is good to recall that buyout of the entire share capital would typically trigger all types of change of control clauses. And the consequences are also important. Sometimes the agreements with change of control clauses are subject to an approval of the counterparty or they can be Subject to a simple notification upon closing. Thus, if there is an approval requirement arising from the change of control of the target, the process needs to be structured diligently, and usually in the interim period, the sellers are requested to ask for an approval from the relevant counterparty. In principle, change of control clauses cannot stop the sale, they can just leave that. Relevant material contract is terminated upon the share transfer. Therefore, if the agreement, including the change of control clause and also its continuity after closing is material for the business, in such case, an approval of the counterparty should be sought as a condition for closing the transaction. So we will move to the next slide and we will have a closer look to the distributorship agreements in our slide. So in the targets, there may be distributorship agreements in place between the purchaser and target. This agreement status will be determined in accordance with the new shareholding structure of the target after the acquisition. If the buyer acquires 100% of the shares, then this agreement will be analyzed and. If necessary, terminated upon closing, or it may be amended post closing, considering the related party transaction provisions. It is totally up to the purchaser and their internal regulations how to handle such distributorship agreements post closing. But what I would like to point out here is certain aspects arising from your past relation with your supplier may come to the negotiation table. In relation with the purchase price of the business. As you may already be familiar with, if an exclusive distributorship agreement is terminated by the supplier without any valid ground, then the distributors may be entitled to a portfolio compensation. In the event an acquisition of the distributor, since the seller might have entitled certain benefits arising from the distributorship agreement including the portfolio compensation. This can have an effect on the parties' expectations and discussions on the purchase price. Therefore, any claims of the sellers arising from distributorship agreements agreement, and any claims must be analyzed carefully during the due diligence since this issue may become part of the negotiation of the purchase price for the business. As a quick note, It's always worth to check your distributorship agreement with your Turkish council, even if the governing law of the agreement can be, even if the governing law of the agreement is not Turkish law. Because certain aspects of the distributorship agreement can be mandatory, and these may be applicable in your relation with your Turkish distributor, in addition to the principle. Of the governing law of the distributorship agreement. So, if there would be a partnership in the target closing, the distributorship agreement will become one of the definitive agreements in the transaction, and will need to be amended or redrafted to reflect the post-closing relation between the transaction parties. At this point, it's good to raise that the distributorship agreements must be drafted to go in hand in hand with other definitive agreements. We will have separate slide on this issue in a few minutes. So another issue to be diligently considered during the due diligence about the distributorship agreements is the distributorship agreements between the target and third party suppliers, if any. Regardless of the acquisition structure, whether it's 100% acquisition or a partnership, aftermath of these agreements could be elaborated with attention Considering the following question: Does the purchaser consider for the target to preserve these relations with other suppliers post-closing as well? At that point, it's possible that other suppliers are competitors with the purchaser. In such case, change of control provisions, distributorship agreement may be a reason for other suppliers to terminate the relationship. On one hand, as we have already discussed, and just on the other hand, other distributorship agreements in place may be planned to be terminated by the purchaser upon closing for any commercial reasons. The purchaser may not want to pursue this relationship and consider to terminate this agreement effective as of closing. In such case, the termination provisions of other distributorship agreements must be examined carefully to understand the consequences of a possible termination for the target. So I see that there are certain things written on the chat board. So I just would like to check with my partners if there is any question which I could answer right now.
2: Do you for time week, We do not have any questions.
1: Perfect. I move on to the next slide then. Okay. Setting aside the key aspects of the Due diligence exercise. In our next slide, we would like to touch upon the relation between the due diligence and the disclosures made by the seller under the definitive agreements. We have already discussed the importance of the due diligence, but along with the due diligence, it is crucial to have any issue which is not reviewed under the data room should be properly covered under the representation and warranties of the share purchase agreement. The common practice under Turkish MA transactions is that the purchaser asks for warranties under the share purchase agreement regarding the shares, company, and also about the business. And with these warranties given by the sellers, the purchaser learns more about the business because the sellers make disclosures against such warranties. As the other side of the coin, however, it is important that. The purchaser will not be able to claim any compensation from the sellers due to a warranty breach if any information is already disclosed to the purchaser in the data room, specifically under the disclosure letters, or even somewhere else throughout the transaction. These were the common approaches that we envisage for all M&A transactions. But one important thing which requires specific attention while buying your distributor is. What could be deemed disclosed according to the share purchase agreement? At the beginning of the presentation, we explained that the purchaser is exposed to a wide variety of information in and out of scope of the due diligence, since they are already aware of the daily operations of the target and have already an information flow from the target uh, thanks to their previous business relation with the target. Therefore, it is important that the scope of knowledge of the purchaser and what should be deemed disclosed shall be carefully defined under the Definitive Agreement, under the FDA, Since otherwise the seller can claim post-closing that the relevant piece of information was already within the knowledge of the purchaser, and therefore the seller should not be liable from the breach of a specific warranty. So definitions would require specific care by drafting of the share purchase agreement. So we will move to the next slide right now. And at this last part of our presentation, we will briefly have a look at transaction documents and how they interact with each other. Let's think this part on an example basis. In our scenario, let's figure out that you buy majority of the shares in our distributor. And consider to increase your shareholding in coming years through a call option or maybe through a put option. And the sellers will continue to be retained by the target as an executive, as a T-level executive for a few more years to help maybe for transition period or to maintain the material customers to the business. And maybe just to make the scenario more complicated, we can say the sellers will have an earn-out payment by the end of this period, which would be linked to the performance of the business, to the expected EBITDA of the company. So in our scenario, in this case, we will have first a share purchase agreement where we will have closing actions, conditions precedent, and also the earn-out and share purchase agreement, will be executed between purchaser on one hand and the seller on the other hand. Secondly, we will have a shareholders agreement where the parties are, again, the seller and the purchaser. Since the seller will remain in the company as a shareholder and also as a C-level executive in the company with an earn-out entitlement, the seller and purchaser will most probably have joint control on the company. And thus, the scope of this joint control will be agreed under the shareholders' agreement through the board structure, through the veto rights at the board and general assembly level given to the seller, and also through the signature authorities granted to the seller, which will be agreed as an annex to the shareholders' agreement and will be a, a main corporate document like internal directive or signature circular of the company. And as the third leg of this transaction, we will have a distributorship agreement. But this time, the parties of the distributorship agreement are not the seller and the purchaser, but the company on one hand, the target on one hand, and the purchaser on the other hand. In such a case, it is crucial how the definitive agreements interact with each other. It requires very special attention, so let's think about how and why. In our scenario, most probably the seller would seek for comfort to the extent possible through the control rights to be agreed under the shareholder's agreement in order to support the business performance. Profitability and thus the expected EBITDA of target until the end of the earn-out period because maximizing the EBITDA in such a period would principally also mean maximizing the earnout of the sellers, which is already agreed under the share purchase agreement. This means the agreed terms under the shareholders agreement and also to the extent they are reflected to the articles of association of the company or maybe to the signature circular or internal directive of the target in parallel. So these will have a direct effect to the earnout provisions which are mainly agreed under the share purchase agreement. But this is not all. We also have a distributorship agreement in place, which is executed between the purchaser in their capacity as the supplier of the company and the company itself, the target itself, as the distributor of the purchaser. In this relationship, it is very important to consider that the target's decision-making mechanism against the purchaser, and therefore how the company would act and comply with terms of the distributorship agreement will rely on the principle agreed under the shareholders agreement. From a purchaser's perspective, considering that the purchaser would not prefer to have a disputed relation with its own subsidiary based on the distributorship agreement, it should be in the core of all negotiation and drafting points how the decision-making and control mechanism of the target agreed under the shareholders' agreement, and these will be mirrored to the other transaction documents. I know it looks a bit complicated, so I don't want to cause any further confusion on these case-specific issues. This can be more and more, but I would like to remind you, all these documents need to be drafted in a complementary way with each other, in order to avoid any disputes in the future, Under the presentation, I put years between the definitive agreements to make you remember always that if there is a defect under one of these agreements, this can, this defect can prevent the proper operation of the whole engine. So I would like to end my presentation here and leave the ground to Sinan, to further analyze the competition concerns of the transaction. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. And please feel free to ask any questions to the chat board or at the end of the presentation. We will be happy to discuss.
3: Thank you very much, Dugu, And thank you very much to everyone again for attending our webinar today. From the competition law perspective, there are two issues that we mainly want to tackle. One is the merger control requirements under the Turkish merger control regime, and secondly, We want to talk about competition law considerations for due diligence and post-transaction integration. Um, Next slide, please. Um, So to start with the very basic qualities of Turkish merger control regime, particularly for the benefits of our foreign guests. um, Turkey has a well-established merger control regime that's been active for more than 20 years. And accordingly, mergers or acquisitions that meet certain conditions require the approval of the Turkish competition board to gain legal validity. Two things to emphasize about this regime. A, it's a mandatory regime. So it's mandatory to file all notifiable transactions. And secondly, it's a suspensory regime. So what we mean by this is that you will have to wait for the approval of the Turkish competition board before closing a notifiable transaction. Next slide, please. Well, what happens if we do not abide by this requirement? So if if the parties close a notifiable transaction before first gaining the approval of the Turkish competition board, that would be what we call violating the suspension requirements or or gut jumping. And the main consequence of this is a turnover-based fine of 0.1% of the acquirer's local turnover. Additionally, there can be additional legal consequences And the first one of these would be that technically the transaction would be invalid before the Turkish Competition Board eventually reviews it and clears it. And in the extreme case that the Turkish Competition Board, upon its review, finds that transaction is anti-competitive and actually prohibits it, then the board would be authorized to terminate or rewind the transaction if it's taken place already. And it can levy additional monetary fines up to 10% of the acquired local turnover. It's also important to point out, I think, that the Turkish Competition Board has a very solid track record in terms of penalizing gun jumping. So this is not a toothless requirement by any chance by any chance. The Turkish Competition Board has imposed gun jumping fines in in multiple occasions and recently as well. And this fine is where, where the Turkish Competition Board becomes aware of gun jumping, this fine is imposed automatically. So even if the transaction doesn't have any anti-competitive effects, or, you know, there was no bad faith intention to not file, you know, regardless that the fine would be imposed by the Turkish Competition Board in case of gun jumping. Next slide, please. So, when does the filing become necessary? The first condition is that the transaction should lead to a change of control on a lasting basis. Uh, Next slide, please. And as far as what control entails from a merger control perspective the most obvious example is sole control so particularly in the case that we most often see where the distributor is barred altogether that would you know definitely satisfy the control requirements and it would be what we call acquisition of sole control where you alone exercise decisive influence on the distributor. however what's important to point out is that even if you do not obtain sole control or even if you do not even obtain majority shareholding, you could still be deemed to acquire control from a Turkish uh, merger control perspective. Uh, Particularly if you, you know, along with the minority shareholding, if you obtain certain veto rights over decisions that the competition board deems commercially strategic, which include particularly the approval of the budget, the approval of the business plan, appointment of senior executives and certain investment decisions. In these cases, the Turkish competition boards can deem that you've acquired so-called negative joint control. And thus, even with a relatively small shareholding acquisition, you may have to still notify the transaction to the Turkish competition authority. Next slide, please. Well, our second condition is the satisfaction of the turnover thresholds. Next slide, please. The turnover thresholds are relatively simple, and I'll not go into them uh, in great detail here. But mainly, if we already have a large acquirer with high turnover, in, in that case, if the distributor has a turnover exceeding 30 million Turkish lira, the transaction would most likely be notifiable so it's not a very high threshold as you can see one thing to watch out for here is an amendment that took place in uh, february 2017 and according to this if you acquire companies operating in the same product markets three-year periods the turnover of these targets may need to be aggregated uh, with the current target for the purpose of the turnover threshold assessment so to put this into perspective suppose you have multiple distributors Uh, for a given product and and you buy, you know, various of them one by one in a three-year period, even if none of them satisfy the threshold by themselves, because of this aggregation principle, eventually the transactions may become notifiable. So it's important to watch out for this. Next slide, please. So once we establish that the transaction will be, will require a notification to the competition authority, It's important to take this into account for your timing considerations particularly for the anticipated closing dates and the determination of the long stop dates. Technically, the Turkish competition board has a 30 calendar day review period. So if the board doesn't react within 30 days, the transaction will be deemed approved. However, in practice, the authority usually requests additional information, which extends this time period. And as the workload of the authority has been increasing in the past few years, we've seen this uh, review period go up progressively. And even for, you know, technical filings that don't pose competition issues, it's often we see review periods of 45 or 60 days. So it's important to be cognizant of this in your planning and make sure that you start the preparation of the application in due time in line with your closing goals. Next slide, please one thing to watch out for during this period as you're waiting for the clearance of the turkish competition board is you know after the filing even if you do not uh, close the transaction in a formal manner certain conduct towards the distributor may lead the turkish competition board to conclude that you have acquired control in a de facto manner so what we mean by this if you already start to influence the actions of your targets And examples of this would include making executive appointments already, physical integration of the premises, deciding uh, certain things on the distributor's behalf. The Turkish competition board may take the view that you've already acquired uh, actual control of the targets and impose gun jumping fine based on this. One thing to watch out for in this department is the interim covenants in SPAs. So obviously these are very crucial for protecting the value of the targets during the interim periods. But if these give you too much power and influence over the actions of targets, they may rise to the level where they result in a de facto acquisition of control and may result a de facto gun jumping situation. And recently seen an example of that in a decision by the European Commission. So it's important to watch out for this as well. Next slide, please. In our uh, our second topic, we're going to discuss how to take competition law issues into account during the due diligence phase in the most effective manner to maximize the red flags quoted and also how to carry this forward in the post-transaction phase to maximize compliance. So we all know that competition law is an important part of the due diligence process, particularly due to the heavy penalties that the Turkish competition board can impose and the liability this can bring. And a traditional document-based due diligence can be very effective for identifying certain competition law issues. So, you know, competition law issues that we often see, such as resale price maintenance, improper non-compete clauses, and other particularly vertical violations or certain abusive dominance types, we can spot these in, in contracts and or through relatively simple Q&As with management. But other issues such as cartels, improper information exchanges, etc., do not leave behind a paper trail. So it's very difficult to spot them in a traditional due diligence process. Next slide, please. So what we found very useful in certain past cases is to adopt a competition due diligence approach. And this is where we go beyond a traditional document review or, or you know, relatively more simple Q&A sessions and basically undertake extended reviews through interviews with key employees of the targets where we go into detail into things like, well, does the targets attend trade association meetings? How does it conduct itself in such meetings? If it does, how does it collect market intelligence? So basically issues that can often lead to horizontal competition law violations. And provide one example in one case, again involving the acquisition of a local distributor, we found that there was certain risky conduct in trade association meetings. So we were able to take measures against that by both taking out a specific indemnity in the SPA and also making sure that the conduct in the trade association is revised uh, post-transaction or the Distributor employees restarted attending the trade association meetings. Next slide, please. So as you can see by this example, the compliance due diligence can also be very helpful for ensuring competition law compliance post-transaction. If the due diligence in the initial review uncovers significant competition compliance red flags, this also gives you the opportunity to conduct a more extensive internal review, uh, including e-discovery methods such as email review. And if this leads to the uncovering of cartel activity in, in particular, you can take very effective remedial actions such as making a leniency application to the Turkish Competition Authority, which can avoid liability altogether. So, you know, uh, taking this approach can be a powerful way of avoiding potential competition law liability. And as a final point, we want to emphasize that, well, but red flags, obviously, this will be a good point for combining a compliance program around them. But even if you don't, it's important to keep in mind that in Turkey, distributors are often small scale companies, and the level of competition law awareness may often be behind that of large suppliers. So it's often the case that they don't have effective uh, compliance programs in place. So even if no issues are spotted in due diligence space, it's important to quickly establish an anti-trans compliance program for the newly acquired subsidiary, particularly one that involves tailor-made trainings, and uh, competition law guidelines and policy that provides clear guidelines. So this is it for our competition law presentation. I see one question in Q&A. I think there is one question. Can you please give examples of interim period covenants in SPA which can be considered as gaining control de facto, thus leading to gun jumping? Well, this uh, an example of this was something we saw in the European Commission's Altis decision recently, and it was also very recently approved by the General Court of the European Union. So in that decision, we saw various uh, behaviors leading to the finding of de facto acquisition of control. But as far as the SPA, two things was, well, the first one was regarding uh, the appointment of executives during the interim period. So the European Commission saw no issues with, you know, an interim period covenant that says you have to retain your key employees, But in But in that, in that case, the, the interim covenant stated that for any additional key employee or material employee, Bargit would have to gain the approval of the acquirer. And the European Commission thought that was too much, so that had to be limited. And apart from this, you know, there was as as we see in the SPAs, often uh, there were a, a lot of um, points with you know, taking certain ag- actions above uh, a certain monetary threshold. And, you know, uh, these these sorts of articles can be legal, but it's very important to make sure that, you know, get the monetary value right so that you're not actually interfering in day-to-day affairs and the ordinary business of the targets. So the European Commission thought that in that particular case, The monetary thresholds were so low that the acquirer basically had acquired control over the day-to-day going of the business. Sinan, you have another question. Okay. Can you read or shall I read? Uh, I can read. Yeah. Would Sinan have any specific comments on the issues to watch out uh, regarding information exchanges in such vertical acquisitions? Good question. So how to, particularly during the due diligence phase and in general, getting the information exchanges right uh, is very important. So, you know, this is most risky when you are acquiring a competitor because, you know, much of the information that you gain during the due diligence process can be commercially sensitive. So things like, you know, the, the their contracts, their customers, you know, uh, financial information, et cetera. For a vertical transaction, uh, the level of sensitivity is a bit less, but it's important to be cognizant of the fact that your distributor can be your uh, competitor in certain occasions. So for example, the distributor can be a, a multi brand distributor, also selling the products of competitors. So in that case, it's very important. To make sure that you don't gain commercially sensitive information uh, regarding that competing product. So for contracts regarding those products, you know, customer lists, profit margins, etc., you know, for that specific information, I think would be better covered under a clean team arrangement. So this is where... The employees of the acquirer, which deal with commercial matters, uh, do not review this information, but you have a so-called clean team, which are not involved in day-to-day commercial affairs. Who review that information and create reports accordingly, which do not include the commercially sensitive information. And it's important to also remember that there can be dual distribution situations where the acquirer also sells products directly. So it can have a certain, you know, intra brand competition with its distributor. And in those cases as well, it's, if that's the situation, you know, then you want to be a lot more careful about. You know, information, including the, you know, prices and um, customers of the distributor in particular. So overall, you know, I, I think there would be a bit more leeway in vertical transactions, particularly where, you know, for example, you have a distributor that's working exclusively with you and not with any competitors. But, you know, it's, it's very important to watch out for those situations where the distributor can be your competitor. Thank you very much. So I think those are the two questions that we yes. have. Thank you very much for listening. And I'll turn the floor over to my compliance colleagues. Thank you.
4: Thank you, Snell. Thank you. Okay, sorry, sorry, I thought I was frozen for a second. Hi everyone, uh, this is Yellen. I lead our compliance practice here and I also call it our dispute practice here. Now, you may think that compliance may not seem to be the focus of a transaction where you will be considering to buy your distributor also, but you would be surprised at the number of disputes, arbitrations, investigations, FCPA breaches and the like that have arisen from incidents that have happened in respect of, in respect of transactions where distributors were both and later compliance-related issues were discovered. So, so despite this not sounding like the most popular or the most attention-attracting aspect of a transaction of this type, this is actually one of the areas that has the capacity to generate a lot of issues. Uh, for those of you that know him, Mr. Paul McNaughty, he used to be the Deputy Attorney General of the United States, enforcing compliance related methods. And, and so he has a great summary of the situation. He says, if you think compliance is expensive, then try non-compliance. That's, uh, that, that approach should be the dominant approach uh, whenever you're considering to by your distributor in uh, Turkey. If we can move on to the next slide, please. Okay. Now let's let's start with the most pessimistic slide, but don't worry. Really. The rest of the uh, uh, our, the rest of our discussions is not going to be uh, this pessimistic. Unfortunately, Turkey ranks 86th among 180 countries in the uh, international cor- corruption uh, index. Now, what this means? Well, I think what, what, is, what this means is obvious, which is that. Turkey is not, or the Turkish business atmosphere and community is not the most compliant or is far away from being the most compliant friendly uh, regime uh, in the world. But uh, this being the statistic, we have so many international clients, multinational clients who are subject to FCPA, the UK bribery and the like, uh, who have managed to continue on with their operations in a fully compliant way without without facing any issues and so 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 long as uh, you watch out the precautions you take out certain measures and and so uh, I think uh, you can uh, certainly uh, function in a a fully compliant way in Turkey even if you're subject to ACPA even if you're subject to the UK bribery act and like or any other threshold you have uh, you can operate in Turkey without uh, making any breaches in respect of uh, any of those and now uh, while I'll go on talking, I'll, uh, together with me today, we also have uh, dear Gokce, who's our senior associate in the uh, compliance uh, department. As far as I know, she's the only lawyer in Turkey that's been doing only compliance related issues, even I am doing both compliance and disputes, but Gokce is the only lawyer I know who has been doing only compliance for almost a decade in Turkey. And given my observations, she is telling some of these issues much better than I can, so I'll hand it over to you, Gökçe, but I'll also talk with some practical examples and practical experiences of some of the issues that we have faced together, but over to you, uh, Gökçe. Let's start with the... The importance of compliance, compliance due diligence in those types of projects, and we can
1: take it on from that.
5: Thank you, Yumbei, for, for nice words and the, and the introduction. So if you would like to complete a transaction in a compliant way, um, from compliance perspective, then actually there are three stages that you should consider. First of all, we always advise you to carry out the compliance due diligence. This is a stage where actually we try to determine all the compliance-related risks. And if we find some, then we skip to the second phase. This is the phase where actually we try to find the most appropriate way to protect our company and ourselves. And we consider implementing certain protection. This could be a contractual protection. This could be a structural protection. Or we can even consider some reporting choices. For instance, in a contractual protection, we can implement certain warranties or certain specific amenities in the face of compliance risks. And structural protection may include certain car watts or conditional precedents where we actually car out the 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 problematic business line from, from the transaction. And if the violations seem to be not I mean, the risks related to violation may not be mitigated. Maybe we should consider the reporting choices. So as to the post-closing, actually, this is one of the most important parts because when you actually, in the first stage, when we carrying out our due diligence, we don't have the control over the target. So we don't, there, there might be certain risks that we could not actually spot. Therefore, we always advise our clients that when you complete the transaction, Will, you should actually carry out another compliance audit in a more detailed way. And also, you should consider I an mean, integration of the target into your corporation for, from a compliance perspective. Um, can I have a slide, please? So let's look at, I mean, why should we care about compliance in an M&A transaction? So the first reason is that you can inherit certain liabilities, even if the violations are the historic violations. This means that, the distributor may violate certain laws before the transaction, and you might be still, after the completion of the transaction, you might be still be liable from these violations. This happens especially if you are a U.S. company. The second way that... And on that, that,
0: on that Költsch,
4: sometimes what we observe is there is a wrongful conduct that is going on in the distributor, which the principal is not aware of, and then this is not disclosed to the principal, and somehow because that wrongful conduct is done on a day-to-day basis, sometimes it's difficult for the principal to be able to immediately identify that wrongful conduct. And then what happens is, even without the knowledge or the intention of the principal, that wrongful conduct, breach or whatever it is, sometimes in our experiences, we see that they go on being in the operations of those types of things, go on being in the operations of the distributors after the principal's, Having acquired distributors for a year or for a year and a half. And then all of a sudden it becomes apparent either coincidentally or during a, a compliance review or through a whistleblower letter or something like that. But we are aware of various instances where wrongful conducts that were that had been initiated by the distributors without the knowledge of the principles were later continued on and extended to the time period where the principal was that had taken over the company as well. because... principal was unaware of that wrongful act unfortunately so that's one of the most risky things to flag during those types of transactions over to
1: you
5: thank you a second reason to consider that you may face extensive cleanup costs after the transaction if you would like to carry out your business in in a compliant way also Like previous breaches, historic breaches may also impact on share price and reputation. I mean, if somehow the historic breaches were revealed after the completion of the transaction, then this may also affect your reputation and also the share prices. A last reason that we can consider is that you may also lose business because if your target is not compliant, then their business is not sustainable. If their business model is not sustainable, then you're actually investing in the wrong company. Also... If you're a reputable company, if you're known that you're always carrying out your business in a compliance way, if somehow that your targets, I mean, your newly purchased company is somehow in compliance, then this may lead also loss of a customer base. Also, in Turkish regulation, certain breaches in public procurement processes debarment of the of the relevant company from participating public procurements. Another slide, please.
4: And, Doctor, perhaps on that, we can also mm-hmm. give the example where of some incidents we have come across, which is when the compliant principles started doing the business in a compliant way, the non-compliant business model or some parts of it, when it ceased to exist, some customers were lost because of that new and compliant practice. And this then goes back to the initial pricing of the transaction. because mm-hmm. well, the transaction was probably priced on the assumption that current customer bases would, under normal circumstances, continue on, will be expanding and so. But there are a of instances where various customers or large customer bases were lost when the principals found out and stopped some of the non-compliant ads within the, uh, within the distributors. So uh, this may also uh, give... A wrong image with respect to the financials and the pricing of the initial uh, transaction, and that's something to forward to. In terms of a compliance duty as well. All due
5: to Thank you. Exactly. I mean, in that scenario, you are basically paying a lot of money for, for, a, for a company that is not worthy. So let's look at the certain red flags that you're watching out during a compliance due diligence. So we there might be tons of red flags depending on the structure of the company, the country, the, the relevant industry, the characteristic of the company. But today we are going to focus on three types corruption anti money laundering and sanction so for instance if the country or the industry has a reputation for corruption then this this might be a red flag by the way not i mean if there is a red flag in that specific transaction it doesn't really mean that you cannot complete this transaction it doesn't mean that you have to walk away but It means that you actually need to mitigate that risk before completing the transaction so that you don't actually face with the consequences that we previously mentioned. And also, for instance, in certain scenarios, the business partners may be problematic. For instance, they might insist on anonymity without any explicit reason, or a business partner may lacks resources to perform certain services or they may be receiving excessive compensations or they may refuse to sign compliance clauses which is really important to protect the company or they're always avoiding written communication that's also another red flag unusual methods of payments they're always red flags for instance they are just asking to direct the money to a third country which is irrelevant to the transaction or the business so if you see one of these red flags then you should actually dig that problem in a more detailed way to determine what is the real reasons behind that.
4: Real issue sometimes in compliance due diligence is unfortunately unlike normal legal due diligence where you can see certain things over the documents and so compliance due diligence are or compliance-related issues are sometimes the hardest to identify during due diligences. but there are some specific methods to increase the efficiencies of compliance due diligence. For instance, many things we cannot identify on paper, we manage to identify or find out through sincere interviews with some of the Employees. So that's a method. There are some other methods, some cross checking methods, some interviews with the counterparts and like, and then a combination of those methods and the typical due diligence actions help us identify any compliance issues.
5: Exactly. Next slide, please. So let's look at the money laundering and sanctions-related red flags. So the target may actually shoot beneficial owners or the target may carry out certain business with shell companies without any reason, or there there might be numerous cash tra- Transaction, Also, the financial activity may not match with the business operations. These are some samples of red flags from money laundering perspective. Also from sanctions perspective, if, if the target is located or if the target is somehow linked with a territory, which is subject to extensive sanctions program, for instance, Cuba, Iran, North Korea, Syria, Russia—I mean, this list can go. I mean, can be increased. Then this—you need to pay more attention on the sanctions-related issues, or the, the relevant sectors may subject to enhanced level of exposure to export controls or sanctions. Certain sectors are always more risky than others, such as defense, nuclear, oil and gas, energy, mining, healthcare, or ITC are the examples. So. If you're facing with one of these sectors, then you should maybe also um, consider the specific compliant risk, which are related with those sectors. Next slide, please. Also understanding distributors' organizational charter is also important because to, I mean, identify the compliance related risk, we also understand the the culture of compliance within the target, the, whether there is a control environment, whether there is an investigation or remediation currently underway, whether there is an efficient compliance program. These are all certain tools for us to understand, for so the questions that we need to ask, to understand, to assess whether there is a compliance related risk. And always, if you find a compliance issue, then you have to, I guess, have a clear day one compliance uh, program. With a firm timetable, so that you can mitigate those risks. So I'm conscious of time, so I'm going to be really quick on this slide. So as as Yulun said, well, sometimes I mean, no matter how hard we try, we may not, I mean, we may not be able to identify certain compliance-related risks before the completion of the transaction because. Basically, we don't have the control over the target and the compliance risks are the most hard ones to identify and they're easy to hide. And this is the reason why we always suggest our clients to carry out a post-acquisition compliance due diligence. Basically, the approach is similar with the pre-transaction diligence, but... We assess the risk in a more detailed way. And also, we, since we have the control over the company, then we have more tools to look at. For instance, we can carry out interviews with the management or we can, we can carry out a forensic review over the accounts. And then if we found something which is worrisome, then we can remediate these weaknesses. And also, we can consider the reporting obligation to mitigate our risks. Yes, this is all from me. Uh,
4: Yellen, would you, do you have something? Yes, good. Go. Yes, go. Not, nothing else from me as well. Obviously, there are things to do before the. There are things to focus on before the transaction, but there are also various things to look for after the acquisition as well. And as you said, we need to fo- also focus on an integration program as well, which sometimes in practice becomes very really important and i think that's all uh, from our end and over to you Adela.
2: thank you Gökçe, Yalun. now first of all i also want to thank everyone for participating in this webinar it is a real pleasure for us i will mention about the tax aspects of buying your distributor next slide please when deciding on a deal structure tax implications have always been a decisive factor for both sellers and buyers We will now take a quick screenshot of the differences between an asset deal and share deal. Indeed, there may be important differences in the tax advantages they offer and in the of the procedures to be undertaken by both parties. During an asset deal, the tax implications for the seller would be as follows. Any capital gain derived by the seller would be subject to corporate income tax at 23%. However, 50% 50% of the capital gains derived from immobile property sales can benefit from income tax exemption if some conditions are met. There is also a VAT exemption for immobiles held for at least two years if the seller does not engage in trading of real estate. The asset transfer agreement will trigger stamp tax at 0.948. As you know, both buyer and seller will have a joint responsibility for the stamp tax. However, Of course, the parties can commercially decide on which party will bear or meet this liability. Possible outcomes for the buyer's side in an asset deal are as follows. Buyer can utilize depreciation over step-up values of those assets transferred. It's the first advantage. As the seller will issue an invoice for each asset, VAT will be calculated over the sale price. But this VAT will be treated as input VAT for the buyer, but it will take some time to offset this VAT from its output VAT. Again, the buyer and seller will be jointly responsible for stamp tax. And in addition to those taxes, there might be title, discharge, or any uh, registration fee or similar charges. A share deal, however, can be a more advantageous option for tax purposes. And it is simpler than asset deal within the scope of procedural necessities. For the seller side, if the seller is a resident of a treaty country of Turkey, In general, we would say capital gain taxation can be avoided depending on the holding period. If the seller is a Turkish resident entity, then 75% of the capital gain may benefit from income tax exemption under certain conditions. And for individual shareholders, an income tax exemption may apply if the shares or temporary share certificates are being held for more than two years. As you know, SPAs are exempt from stamp tax. There is also no VAT burden because either joint stock uh, company shares are printed or for limited liability companies. If the holding period exceeds two years, there will be no VAT burden. If the seller is an individual or a non-resident entity, then it will not fall within the scope of VAT. For the buyer side, contrary to an asset deal, step values cannot be made subject to depreciation. Any carrying forward losses, R&D incentive or VAT assets of the company can still be used. Tax liabilities are assumed for past years. As you know, the status of limitation period is five years. There will be no VAT cash outflow. SPA will be exempt from tax. Next slide, please. If a portfolio compensation is paid by ForenCo, in this example, to the distributor as a result of the termination of distributorship contract, the distributor must issue an invoice to ForenCo. Even though NewCo, I mean the subsidiary of ForenCo, acquires the distributorship business in Turkey, the termination compensation cannot be considered as deductible expense at the new call level. The termination contract will trigger stamp tax at 0.189%. In case of an asset deal, an excess of purchase price over the fair value of the assets will be treated as goodwill and goodwill should be capitalized and it will be depreciated for tax purposes or a five-year period. Next slide, please. When we look at the financing of Turkish subsidiary, we see there are three, at least there are three, alternative scenarios regarding the financing of the Turkish subsidiary. First option is obtaining a loan from a group company that is not a bank or financial institution. In that case, interest paid are treated as deductible expense, however, thin cap rules and transfer pricing rules are reserved. We should also mention the limitation on financing expense deduction, which was introduced last year. If the external liabilities of the taxpayer exceeds its equity, then 10% of the total expense and cost items that exceed would be treated as non-deductible expense. And finally, loan interest utilized for financing investments pertaining to the foundation period should be capitalized and those incurred operating period can be capitalized or can be booked di- as expense directly. Next slide, please. The loan interest is subject to VAT at 18%. This VAT is not a cost. It would be treated as input VAT for the borrower. If the loan is provided by a foreign group company, the interest paid is subject to 10% withholding tax. But in majority of cases, this, this withholding tax can be offset from the, the lender's tax to be paid in foreign country. For loans derived abroad, we have RUSF at 0 to 3% Resource Utilization Support Fund, depending on the average maturity of the fixed denominated loan. For Turkish Turkish Lira-denominated loans, RUSF applies at 1% over the interest if the average maturity is less than one year. In the sense, Turkish Lira-denominated loans are encouraged by the Turkish Treasury. Next slide, please. Second alternative we would like to point out is that the Turkish subsidiary can be financed through a loan obtained from a bank or financial institution. If the loan is derived from a third-party bank, no thin cap and transfer pricing rules apply. Loan interest would be treated as deductible expense. If the loan is provided by a Turkish bank, then it would trigger 5% BITT banking and insurance transaction tax. If the loan is provided by a foreign bank, then RUSF rules would apply gain, and there will be no VAT implications and there will be no stamp duty. Next slide, please. Last but not least, as an alternative, Turkish subsidiary can be financed through a capital injection by of a capital increase. As you may remember, Turkey introduced notional interest deduction as a new tax incentive measure for cash capital increases, effective from July 1st of 2015. This incentive allows the Turkish subsidiary to deduct 50% of the notional interest to be calculated over cash capital increase amounts from its corporate income tax base. We should add that the rate is 75% for the capital paid in cash from abroad as of November 2021. Capital increase, as you will expect, does not have any adverse tax consequences. Next slide, please. We should also mention about the technical bankruptcy review and capital sufficiency Check or target. As you know, under Article 376 of Turkish Commercial Code, if two-thirds of the sum of the share capital and statutory reserves is uncovered due to losses appearing in the last year's balance sheet, the General Assembly should convene immediately and decide between two options to protect company from dissolving automatically. These are either to supplement the share capital or to decrease the share capital until it reaches one-third of the current capital of the amount. In addition to that, you know, Ministry of Trade introduced some interior-to-interior measures in relation to the calculation of technical bankruptcy for a temporary period. The first one is a fixed losses resulting from liabilities and have not been paid yet, would not be taken into consideration in the calculation of equity. The second one is that Half of the expenses for leasing, depreciation and personal expenses in 2020 and in 2021 can also not be considered in calculation of the equity. These are two interim measures introduced in order to save company. Touch the floor is yours for employment.
0: Thank you. Thank you again for your participation. The final thing to watch out before the distributor shares is I reckon it's employment aspect. So I will go through four pillars. First one is employment due diligence. Secondly, things to watch out for. Third, integration process, and finally following the transaction employment restructuring. So first thing first, employment due diligence is vital, especially checking the social security records is quite important to check if all employees are registered and salaries are fully paid, because what we have experienced from the past transactions in family businesses, they might, from time to time, not register certain employees or Some part of the salaries are not paid in full, which may result in liability during the transaction. So secondly, it's a good idea to check if the employment documents are in line with the labour code, such as working hours. And the same goes with any golden parachute clauses for C-level employees, which may require employer to pay and some compensation at the time of termination. Likewise, subcontracting, lease, employment are very common issues, and this can this should also be the buyer should be careful about. Finally, considering COVID nineteen, necessary precautions need to be taken, such as implementing the highest level of hygiene and sanitation, or reorganizing workplace to avoid any workplace accident, which may also become an issue. So these and similar findings may be addressed to reps and warranties under the transaction documents, indemnity, or together with the indemnity clauses. Next slide, please. Signing any employment agreement may also be quite handy. Align a consistent approach between the companies. And bonus eligibility is also a good idea to set out in advance. Like, likewise regulating the confidentiality or non-compete provisions. So I would like to put a special emphasis on the non-compete provision, which is quite common for eleven employees. So there are three things to consider. First, the restriction should not be more than two years. Secondly, vague language to define the territory must be avoided rather than Republic of Turkey it should be Istanbul, City of Izmir, Ankara or Marmar region. And finally, it's quite hard to calculate the damages for the violation of the non-compete obligation. So including a penalty clauses serve for two purposes. First, it will help calculation of the damages and also it will have a deterrence effect on the sea level employee to behave and comply with this obligation. Next slide, please. So the integration process centers around six business days rules. The rule says any material adverse change under the employment documents, including employment agreements, require consent of the employee within six business days. So what happens if the employee do not provide the consent? Then in this case, if the employer insist on the implementing the new changes, employee may terminate the employment agreement and ask for statutory seniority compensation. And under specific circumstances, it would be in addition to the discrimination or mobbing case as well. So the most common changes, material or changes that we, we have experienced in this similar transactions are material change in the office address and also changes in benefits or compensation. Next slide, please. And the final remark is redundancy due to overlapping positions. So our advice is it is possible to make it done before the closing of the transactions because the time frame to file and reinstatement lawsuit is 30 days. And regardless of the timing, there should be a board resolution. And what we advise is to reach an agreement with the employees, which I mean, mutual termination agreements and what we, we should advise for the mutual termination agreements are to pay all the employment receivables under the agreements, plus to pay at least four months additional salary to minimize the risk to employees. And also the, this risk can also be mitigated under the transaction documents. So that's all from my parts. I think we can move on to the uh, Q and A part.
2: I can't see any questions from Q and A and chat. But, uh, so if you have any questions, we would be happy to answer. Do you have any question?
1: And please feel free to reach out if you have questions after our webinar. We would be happy to help as well.
2: Yeah. Uh, sure, do you go? Uh, we believe it has been a productive webinar for everyone. Of course, it is not possible to cover all dimensions of an M&A deal in ninety minutes. However, uh, I think it is crystal clear that an M&A deal is not just an M&A, but it has many dimensions, including but not limited to competition, compliance, tax, employment, etc. In this sense, this workshop shows that an M&A deal, buying your distributor seems simple, but it is, in reality, it is much more complex process than we thought. Thank you again for your participation. We wish you a happy and healthy new year. Bye.